adults with me, you're going to be turning to Revelation chapter 2. So grab your Bibles or your phone or your device and meet me in Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing on in our series that we've called Apocalypse Now as we walk through the book of Revelation and as we uh, take some time, just a little bit at a time, as we uh, get out of the seven churches that we've been in for the last number of weeks. We still have a few weeks left on that. But as we move out of that, we are going to pick up speed in how we are moving through the rest of the book of Revelation. It's a big book. Uh, There's sort of a natural progression of how to break things up for sermons, but there's going to be some days where we just cover a whole chapter in one day, and so we will pick up speed a little bit as we get going. But we are at the part of the book of Revelation where uh, this is a letter that was written to seven specific churches, and it was meant for all of the churches, but within this letter, Jesus has a specific little shout-out that he gives to each particular church that speaks to their particular situation. And so we are continuing our way through that, and we'll be there for the next few weeks as well. So I uh, love history, as though anyone who knows me knows. If I hadn't been a pastor, I probably would have been a history teacher, and just always have. I'm just fascinated by where we come from, and uh, especially how it informs where we are now. I think it's so interesting to look to our history, whether it's a family history, or whether it's our nation's history, or, or history of different places around the world, and look at how does that inform where we've come to today. I just find it fascinating, and, and just learning the story of who we are and where we come from. So I had read a book recently called The War of 1812 by Pierre Burton. He's a Canadian historian. He's passed away now. But uh, The War of 1812 is the only full-scale war that's ever been on Canadian soil. We are, we are mercifully spared uh, from a lot of the bloodshed that has taken place in the history of the world. There has not been a ton of that. So there's been one full-scale war uh, between opposing nations, and lots of other minor things and lots of other skirmishes there. But this was a war between America and Britain at the time. We were a British colony. Canada was not independent, but we were British and under British control. And so America had already fought a revolution to get its freedom from Britain. They too were a British colony. They didn't want to be under British control, so they fought a very bloody war, and they got their freedom. And so Britain gave up America but kept Canada. And so Canada was British, and it's not like... Like after the revolution ended, all of the tensions just went away just like that. There were still some lingering issues that went on. Britain was doing their thing. America was getting more and more frustrated. And so finally, America got frustrated to the point where they decided to declare war on Britain. And so they didn't have a navy, or not much of one anyway to speak of. They couldn't send thousands of troops over to fight Britain in Britain, but Canada was right there. We were touching each other, and so it was very easy to declare war on Britain and try to get at Britain through declaring war and trying to take over Canada. And so that was the American goal, is we are going to make Canada American. Now, some of you, that sounds like a wonderful thing, and some of you, that sounds like your worst possible nightmare. And so that obviously didn't happen because we are not American today. Their goal was to try and take it over and kick Britain off the continent, and it didn't work. And so uh, one of the things I find interesting about that battle, just as it relates to us, is a lot of it happened around here. A lot of it happened in Windsor-Essex and in Chatham. Amherstburg was a major site. Windsor and Detroit uh, was a major site of a battle. And then over in Niagara, there was a lot of stuff happening there. And so there is a lot of local history tied up in all of this. And so the war kind of seesawed back and forth for a little bit. Um, America invaded and tried to come in on the Detroit side and the Niagara side. And the British pushed them back and were able to move into America. And then the Americans counterattacked. And so it sort of went back and forth. And so for 
couple years, the war goes on. It's not super bloody. Um, there's not huge armies involved. At the end of the, the couple of years, the British and the Americans all sat down at a table. And as they sat down at the table, they basically just said, like, we're tired of this war. Are you guys tired of this war? We're all tired of this war. All right, let's just go back to the way things were. So no territory changes hands, no major concessions made. Everything just goes back to the way it was. But there's one story I want to talk about today uh, within the context of that war, and that is the siege of Fort Meigs. So Fort Meigs is in present-day Ohio. And it's just a couple hours from here. If you cross the border at Detroit and head south, you'll run into Fort Meigs. And so in the first part of the war, the British were doing very, very well. And uh, we had launched out from Amherstburg and taken over Detroit. We'd taken over another fort uh, in northern Michigan and the islands up there. And so most of Michigan was under British control. And so the Brit Britain then sets its sights south says, well, let's take over Ohio next. But before they do that, they have to take over Fort Meigs. And so the Americans are in this fort. The British come and attack it. They surround the fort. And the Americans inside the fort are outgunned and they are outnumbered. And so there are more enemy around the fort than they have soldiers in the fort. And the guns that the British have are better. And so the British guns begin hammering the fort and they keep trying to get the Americans to just surrender. They keep saying, we don't want to have to kill anybody. Just surrender us the fort. The Americans refuse to do that. And so the Americans are in trouble because they are surrounded and they are surrounded by a large group. And so once they run out of ammunition, they're just out of ammunition. Once they run out of food, they are out of food. And so they are just holding on as best they can. Whenever a siege is going on, it's all about who's going to outlast the other side. Right? That's how siege works. It's not like a big battle that gets settled once and for all. It's about can the attackers outlast the ones inside and make them surrender, or can the ones inside outlast the attackers until they give up and go away? So in a siege, you are trying to outlast your opponent. You're trying to just hold on and, and hope that one side breaks. And so as the Americans are holding on, they're doing pretty good. They built good defenses. Uh, they figured out a way to, to defend themselves that was going to make sure that they could last for a while, but it doesn't change the fact that they're running out of ammunition and they're running out of food. And then problems start to emerge inside the fort. And so there are people who are going around inside the fort saying, we should just quit. The British are way too numerous. We can't possibly take them on. We're all going to die if we don't give up. And so they start going and spreading these reports. There are people who are figuring that they're going to die, and so they just start drinking, just in the fact that, hey, we're all going to die. Let's, let's just get drunk as we get ready for that. One of them accidentally blew up a cannon because they were doing it wrong because they were drunk while they were handling it. And so that happens. And so uh, the, for the leaders inside the fort, they actually have to start arresting people. They have to arrest the person who's getting drunk. They have to arrest the people who are grumbling and trying to get everyone to quit because that's just not going to help you outlast, right? That's not going to be great for morale when all you're trying to do is outlast. And so as this stretches on into weeks and weeks, um, the Americans get their strategy in place. They figure it out. Uh, eventually, it's the British, actually, who give up. The British finally realize, ah, oh, we're never going to do this. Members of the British army start to get bored, and they start to just leave, so their numbers are going down. So eventually, the British withdraw. Uh, the Americans manage to hold on, and they manage to win this battle because they outlasted the enemy. They outlasted the ones who were attacking them. And so I mentioned this last week in one of the services Sometimes when we're in a trial, sometimes we're in, when we're in a hardship, all that's really required is that we hold on. 
All that's required is that you keep just one foot in front of the other. Like the army that was under siege in this fort wasn't expected to go out and win amazing battles, wasn't expected to go and march on the British capital. They weren't expected to, to go and just destroy the enemy that was way bigger than them. They were only expected to hold on. They were expected to keep going, and then they needed to deal with the problems that were going on in their midst, because the things that were going on in their midst might have caused them to give up, might have caused them to lose the battle. And so I had seen a, a post a couple of months into COVID last year that just said, when we were all in that first lockdown, and we didn't really know what we were dealing with, and everything was just overwhelming, and the news was terrifying, and we really weren't sure what was going on, or how long this was going to last, or how long we're going to be locked in our houses, or whatever, um, and it was a post that just said, hey, during lockdown, you don't need to lose 15 pounds. You don't need to master a new language. You don't need to renovate the basement. You don't need to turn your children into A-plus students if they're not A-plus students. You just need to get through the day. You just need to hold on, and you just need to keep going. And there was kind of this pressure of like, yeah, if we're going to be home all this time, we have to be efficient, good North Americans who make the most of everything and accomplish all these great things. But, you know, there was an emotional toll that was happening, and, and there was an a, a intellectual toll that was happening. There was a physical drain that was happening. And so sometimes in a trial, it can be good to go and try to stay on top of things and get things done. Sometimes in a trial, when we're under siege, all we need to do is hold on. We need to hold on and maybe deal with some stuff that's going on inside. And so the church that we're looking at today is the church of Thyatira. And this is a church that is under siege, as all of these churches are. But this church has some stuff going, in, going on inside that it needs to deal with. And so we're going to look at our text now. We're in Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 18. To the church in Thyatira, uh, it's either Thyatira or Thyatira. It gets pronounced in both ways. I usually say Thyatira. Sometimes I forget and say Thyatira. So please forgive me. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations." That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Whew, amen, 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 right? That's not as, uh, maybe not quite as light as some of these other letters. There's a lot of harsh language in there uh, as we get into this. So just as a way of a quick recap, Revelation was written specifically to seven churches and seven cities in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And John writes to these seven churches to encourage them in a time of persecution and to point to some things that are going to be happening as Jesus returns. And so even though this book of Revelation is going out to those seven churches, there's a specific shout out to each particular church. And we've been going through those for the last number of weeks and for a few weeks longer, where Jesus speaks to their unique situation. And typically, not always, but typically in these letters, bring some encouragement. Here are some things that you are doing well. And typically in these letters, bring some correction. Here are some things that need fixing. And so both of these things are found as we go through the letter of Thyatira today. And our job as we go through this is not just to say, well, this is a letter that was written to somebody in the past in one place and one time, because in every letter Jesus says, he who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so it's not just about one church. This is a message to churches, plural. And as we are reading this and as we are digging into it and as you are listening to it today, our job is to say, Lord, what are you speaking to me through this? What is the Spirit saying to Meadowbrook Church in the 21st century? What is the Spirit saying to me and my life through his word? Where am I in this text? And what is the Lord revealing to me? And what should I be paying attention to as we go through this? So Thyatira, one of the cities that is the home of a church that gets this letter back in the first century. Thyatira, we actually know the least about of any of these cities. Uh, it was not a major city. It was one of the smaller cities. And so we don't just have a lot of historical information about it. One of the things we know which is true about all of these churches that we are looking at in Revelation is that the constant challenge for each of these churches was that they were in a world that was surrounded with emperor worship where the Roman emperor, Empire ruled the world and they had a Roman king, Caesar, and whoever was on that throne uh, was worshipped as a god, not just respected as a leader. The expectation wasn't just that you would submit to them or honor them, but you actually had to worship them. You had to bring sacrifices into the temple and worship them as a god. And so that is all around them, all around these churches. And then there's also a lot of idol worship. There's a lot of Greek gods, Roman gods floating around, and these gods are also being worshipped. And so there's a very real pressure for anyone who's a follower of Jesus to participate participate in worshiping the emperor and to participate in worshiping these idols. Thyatira, in specific, uh, really liked Apollo. Apollo was one of the Greek gods. He was the son of Zeus. Zeus was the god of gods, the father of the gods. One And his son is Apollo. Apollo was the sun god. And so they believed in their worship that the sun moving across the sky was Apollo in his chariot, bringing light and warmth to the world. And so Thyatira specifically emphasized Apollo worship, the son of Zeus. And, and actually made that a major focus. One of the things we know about Thyatira as well is that it was full of what were called trade guilds. And so Thyatira is very much uh, a sort of working class, blue collar city with a lot of tradespeople who are doing a lot of good things and they were prosperous in it. And so the trade guilds are a little bit of a precursor to what we would call unions today. And so all the blacksmiths would get together and form a guild. All of the metal workers would get together and form a guild. All the carpenters would get together and form 
form a guild. And you did that so that your particular area of industry could have some standards. Uh, so if it was a guild carpenter, you could rely on the fact that that was quality work. And you did that so that when the guild sometimes had to negotiate with other guilds, they could do it as a block. And so if somebody is a, the house building guild, where they're going to need to use some carpentry and some metalwork and different things, they could negotiate trades together. And so these guilds were very much central to their lives, not just their business, but their lives, because it was how your business worked. If you weren't in a guild, it was really hard to get people to do business with you because you didn't have that reputation of quality work. And so you needed to be in a guild for your business to thrive, but it also became, just because you were all sort of in the same industry and on the same page, that was your social life. And so the trade guilds would get together socially all the time. They would celebrate holidays together. They would do whatever the Roman and uh, early first century equivalent of a backyard barbecue is. They would do that all together. And so this was very much your social life. And then the other part of it, which is going to be very problematic for the Christ follower, is that each guild had a god that they revered. And the god wasn't Jesus. And so there was a God who supposedly blessed carpentry, and there was a God who supposedly blessed jeweler, jewelers. And so every trade guild had sort of like a patron God, and you would have to, as a group, worship that God in the belief that if you offered sacrifices and worship to that God, that God would bless your work, that God would make you prosperous. And so if you are a Christ follower, being in a guild isn't really a problem in terms of like having work that makes sense to get together, to have standards and engage in contracts. That's all good. Social life together, that's not a problem at all. Worshiping gods who are not Jesus is a real problem. And so Christ followers often would not be a part of these guilds. They just couldn't. They said, we can't go somewhere where it is demanded that we worship someone who isn't Jesus. And so because of that, they're missing out on the contracts. And they're missing out on the, the good reputation that got you business. And so there's a serious economic penalty to trying to follow Jesus and not worship other gods. There is a serious social penalty because if you refuse to be a part of this guild, that's your social life gone. And there is a serious spiritual side effect, obviously, of this pressure that you are always constantly expected. Worship Caesar, worship Apollo, and then worship whatever god your guild honors as god. And so all of the Christ followers who aren't doing this are struggling to make ends meet. They are struggling uh, as outsiders and as the marginalized in their society. They're struggling to be faithful to Jesus. And that's around them all the time. That's life every single day. And so to this church that must have felt like they are under siege, Jesus writes this note to them. So starting in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Jesus starts each letter with an introduction of who he is. We get a revelation of who he is. So these are the words of the Son of God. That's the only time the phrase Son of God shows up in the book of Revelation. There's lots of names of Jesus in this book. Son of God shows up lots of other places in the New Testament. But this is the only time the phrase Son of God shows up in the book of Revelation. And uh, scholars think, and I like this idea, that it's probably because the reason he chooses that way to introduce himself is because the city of Thyatira, was all about Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. That was their main guy, the son of Zeus, the son of Zeus, the son of Zeus. And so when Jesus introduces himself, he says, hey, I am actually the son of God. 
I am the son of God. Everyone around you likes that Apollo, but I am actually the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So if you remember back to Revelation chapter one, uh, when John sees Jesus in his glorified state, these are some of the descriptors that, that John uses when he sees Jesus. Jesus' eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Uh, I came across one teaching on this that said, perhaps the reason Jesus uh, portrays himself as the burnished bronze is because there were so many metal workers in the city, and that was just kind of a little nod to them, a way to connect with them. The bronze feet suggest that Jesus is just solid, that he just, he's not shakable, he's not moving like metal, he's strong and he's standing strong. The eyes like blazing fire point to the idea that Jesus' eyes uh, really see us. Right, And we put on, as humans, we put on pretensions, we put on masks, we put on ways that we want people to see us, we put on manipulations and different things. We want to cover up who we really are in our worst parts. We want to highlight and exaggerate our best parts. Jesus' eyes burn through all of that. And he sees us as we really are, for better or for worse. Jesus sees us. Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. And that's something Jesus would say about himself a little later in this passage, that God knows us, that God is looking past appearances, that he is looking past who we're trying to be and project to the world. He's looking past everything that we're putting on to try to put our best self forward that isn't real. Jesus sees past it all. He searches the heart. He examines the mind and he knows us. So moving on to verse 19, to that end, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So most of these letters start with some encouragement. Jesus says, here's the good things that I see. I know your deeds. I know you. My blazing eyes see you as you truly are. I know your deeds. There's good stuff going on in the Christians at Thyatira. I see your love. I see your faith. And faith doesn't just mean belief, but faithfulness out of that belief, your devotion. I see your service. I see your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so these are all obviously things that Jesus approves of. And so one of the things we can do is say, all right, in terms of my love, my faith, my service, my perseverance, what does Jesus see when he looks at me right now? Am I walking in love, love towards him and love towards others? Is that actually showing up? Is that love being demonstrated by the way that I'm living my life? Is my faith on display, my faithfulness, my devotion? Am I serving him and serving others? Am I persevering the way he wants me to persevere? The New Testament talks a lot about perseverance and says that we should be doing it joyfully. Right? We don't grumble our way through things. We don't complain about everything. We're not whiny people. We don't have to be joyful about the circumstances, but we are joyful in those circumstances because we know that Jesus is Lord and he's going to lead us through it. Are we persevering in the way that he would want us to persevere? Jesus says, I see your love. I see your faith. I see your service. I see your perseverance. How are we doing in those four things? And that you are now doing more than you did at first. And that is cool. You might remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. And the the rebuke of the Ephesian church is that uh, you need to go back to the things you were doing at first. You've fallen away from love. And and you need to go back to some of those things. Thyatira, it's the opposite. It's I'm looking at you, and you're doing more now than you did at the beginning. So when I went to school, I studied uh, spiritual formation 
And spiritual formation is the, the look at how are we becoming more like Jesus? How are we? Scripture says we're being made into a new creation. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. So the study of spiritual formation is how does that happen? How do we become more like Christ? How are we getting sin out of our lives? How are we becoming more holy? What is our role in that uh, as the Holy Spirit does his work? And what are some things we can do to move in that direction? So that's the study of spiritual formation. And so one of my professors, and he was the professor of the first course that I took in the program, was, uh, if you can be, I don't think anyone can really be an expert in spiritual things, but if you could be an expert, he's an expert. He'd been studying this for his entire adult life. He was in his 60s, so for like 40 plus years. He's been studying spiritual formation and studying all over the world and written books, and he's incredibly well-respected across the planet. And, and when I looked at his life, I thought, you look like Jesus. Like, you're living this out. Uh, you are an incredible mix of strong and gentle and wise and encouraging, but also challenging and, uh, and just sort of all the best of what you think of when you think of Christ. This man, he wasn't perfect, of course, but he had so much of that. And so I was really interested in everything he had to say because I said, you're not just teaching this, you're actually living this out and God is doing his work informing you. And so I asked him, um, when we're looking at this, this process, this spiritual journey that we're all on, like, what are we looking for exactly? Like, how do you measure that, right? Like, when you think of your spiritual journey, are you more like Jesus than you were uh, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Like, how do you measure something like that? It, it's somewhat of an abstract thought, and, and it's really hard to kind of put, like, do you put a number on it? Like, you're 10% more loving? Like, how do you kind of quantify that and, and make that understandable? And so I was asking him just, like, what are we looking for, right? And then some people in our church are very mature believers, and some people in our church are, like, brand new to all this. And some people in our church are just checking it out. And they're, they're not even uh, necessarily walking with Jesus, but they're just here because they're curious and they want to learn more. Like, how do we look at the scope of, of everybody and everybody being in a different place and everybody responding to the Lord in different ways and looking for different things. Like, what are we looking for from everybody in terms of our journey to be more like Jesus? And he said, Chris, honestly, I'll answer that in one word. And I like one-word answers. That's nice when that happens. And usually that one word has a lot to it. Um, but he said, you know, what are we looking for from people? What are we looking for? Uh, how are we measuring? He said, we're looking for growth. We're looking for increase. That's it. Like, we're looking for, as you look at a life over time, is there change happening? And it doesn't have to be, well, this person grew this much and this person grew this much. He said, that doesn't matter because God has us all on a different path. But are we seeing increase over time? Are you increasing in love? in peace, in joy? Are you growing in your obedience to the word and your understanding of the word and your prayer life and, and your understanding of scripture? Like, are you growing? And, and don't worry so much about like markers you need to hit or, or different, you know, criteria that you're trying to arrive at. Is there increase happening in your spiritual journey? Are you growing? When you look back over time, can you see ways in which you are different? The Thyatiran church gets that commendation. You're doing more now than you did at the beginning. There is growth happening. And they are obviously far from perfect, which we're going to get to in a second. But they are growing in these areas. I see your love. I see your faith. I see your perseverance. I see your service. You're doing more of these things than you were when you first started. And so again, to look at our own life and say, is that me? Because when I look at my life, I can say, yeah, I see certain things for sure that I, I have grown in compared to where I was five years ago. 
And then there's some other things that really maybe haven't changed as much. And sometimes I feel like I grow and then I go backwards and then I got to move forward again. And so to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, if I'm, I'm honest before the Lord, where am I different than I was last year? or two years ago, or five years ago? Where am I maybe not different and need some attention? As Jesus commends them for the good things, uh, the tone shifts as he starts talking about this Jezebel character. Verse 20 to 23. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That's a fear of the Lord verse when Jesus says that to us. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So... Again, if you remember the letter to the Ephesian church from a few weeks ago, the Ephesian church gets commended for they are very committed to truth, right? Do you remember that? Jesus says you're testing everything and you're purging false teaching from your midst. So the Ephesian church apparently had really good theology and really good discernment. They were really committed to knowing what the truth is and protecting the church from anything that wasn't true. But the Ephesian church got corrected for even though that's, that's all good, uh, you've fallen away from your first love. Right? So they were doing theology and discernment really well, but they weren't loving very well. The Thyatiran church that we're looking at today is actually the opposite. They were doing love well. They were commended for how they were loving, but they are not doing as well on the theology discernment department. They have let some things into the church that are not good, things that are ungodly and things that are toxic. And so the Ephesian and Thyatiran church are kind of reversals of each other. One does love really well, but isn't doing so well on truth and discernment. One does truth and discernment really well, but wasn't doing so well in love. We really want to be both, right? We don't want to be one or the other. We want to be people who are rock solid in the word and solid in our theology and solid enough that we are discerning what is of God and what is of the world and what is of the enemy. And we are taking that very, very seriously. But we are not doing that and only that. We want to be loving people unbelievably well. We just want to be loving people ridiculously. I've said before, Bruxy Cavey says, if we are approaching scripture like an orthodox conservative and loving people like a radical liberal that makes the orthodox people a little uncomfortable, then we're getting into the realm of how Jesus lived his life. We don't want to be one or the other. We want to be deeply devoted to truth and deeply devoted to love. So this Jezebel character, Jesus, he's, uh, he's not happy with her. Did you pick up on that? Jezebel is, uh, is mentioned here, and we know Jezebel is a character in the Old Testament, but the language is harsh, right? The language is strong. There's a woman in your midst, she calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching, she is leading people away. She's leading people into false teaching. She's leading people into sexual sin. She's leading people into idolatry. And so the consequences for her are intense. And so Jezebel, in terms of understanding what this means, we need to talk about who she was in the Old Testament for a little bit. So Jezebel was one of the queens of Israel. Her husband was Ahab. Ahab was the king. 
uh, a time when the king is in charge and Jezebel is there to support. But she was uh, not of the people of God and she was a Baal worshiper. Baal was one of the gods that the Canaanites worshipped. And so when they marry and she comes into Israel, uh, she brings Baal worship with her. And she is uh, an evangelist, really, for Baal worship. And she has all these prophets who prophesy in the name of Baal. And she's really trying to get Israel to be a Baal-worshipping nation. And Ahab is right there with her, and he's totally on board. And the word of God says that there has never been a king as evil as Ahab was. He was the worst king. And Israel had a lot of really bad kings. But there was never a king as evil as Ahab was. Ahab was evil, and his wife Jezebel was right there at his side, helping lead the nation into evil. And so Jezebel, I mean, it's, it's become a bit of a phrase, right? It's a bit of a term. If you call a woman a Jezebel, that's not like a pat on the back. That's an insulting thing. And so Jezebel uh, gets painted as this uh, person, sort of the personification of evil. Um, and I mean, I've seen where women get called a Jezebel sometimes uh, even for like having the audacity to like ask a question or, or criticize something. And it's like, oh, what a Jezebel. And it's like there's a bit of sexism involved in that where her name has become synonymous specifically with women uh, who are acting up. But we don't look around at men and say, what an Ahab, right? You've never heard that phrase ever, which doesn't seem quite fair to me because they were both doing this stuff. Um, Jezebel, in addition to this uh, Baal worship, which was a very sexually immoral uh, way of worshiping and, and obviously with idol worship mixed up in there, we know from her story that she's uh, incredibly manipulative. She's very controlling. She's kind of like Lady Macbeth. She's the power behind the throne. Uh, she's a liar. She's a murderer. Uh, she's not admirable. And Ahab is not admirable either. Both of them come to very unfortunate ends. And so Jesus invokes this name as he is speaking to the Thyatiran church, Jezebel is in your midst. Now, Pentecostal charismatics, I come from the Pentecostal world uh, in my background, we'll talk about the Jezebel spirit a lot. You'll hear that phrase, you can Google that phrase, you don't need to do that, you can just listen to me about it, because I don't love everything that's out there on it. But they'll talk about the Jezebel spirit, uh, which suggests there's sort of a specific demonic power that can make us act like Jezebel, and you won't find that phrase in the Bible, so I think we don't need to worry about it that much. But what they're getting at that I think is true is just anywhere where our flesh or our character is acting like Jezebel or anywhere where the enemy might be causing us to act like Jezebel, that's something that we should be aware of because Jezebel wasn't a great character. And same with Ahab or anybody else. And so when we look at Jezebel and say you were an idolater, you were uh, leading in sexual immorality, you were controlling, you were manipulative, you were a liar, you were a murderer, we don't want those qualities, right? That's not controversial to say. We don't want to be acting like that and we don't don't want people in our church to be acting like that. And so Jesus speaks to this issue, and so it's possible uh, that there was literally a woman in the church who was acting like Jezebel, and Jesus is giving her that nickname so that the church realizes how evil she is. So it is possible that there is one woman who is doing this. It's also possible that it just means there is a teaching, there is a heresy, there is a movement that is creeping into the church that is a, like, a lot like the way Jezebel acted. And so I think probably there was a literal person, and that's just a guess because the text isn't clear. But if I had to guess, I'd say there was probably a, a woman, and it doesn't, not necessarily a woman because men can be very Jezebel-like as well, but there is a person in this church that is acting in a Jezebel-like way. And like Jezebel in the Old Testament, this person is going to come to an unfortunate end. And Jesus is coming to cleanse the church because Jezebel needs to be confronted. 
And even though the words are harsh in what he is saying, like, I'm going to strike your children down, uh, and that probably means her followers, whoever is following this movement, not literally kids. But as the, the harshness of this language comes, Jesus also says there's grace in here. He says, I have given her time to stop doing this. I've given her time to repent. But she is unwilling that the Lord in his kindness gives all of us time. Wherever we are in sin, he gives us time. He gives us warnings. He calls us to repent, to turn away, to stop doing what you're doing, to come back. Jesus says, I've given her time to turn this all around, but she is not willing. And so whereas in other letters to the seven churches, there is a warning given, like if you don't stop doing this, the consequence will come. Jezebel doesn't get a warning. Jezebel is just told, your judgment is coming. You've had your time. You have been given time to repent. You are not doing it. And so judgment is coming. And just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, it's going to be harsh. And so whether it's a literal woman or a teaching movement that is happening, it is inside the church. And the church has not done well at, at kicking it out and being aware of it. And so there is a leading into sin. And there's a leading into idolatry. And there's a leading into false teaching. And so for all of us, there is just that call to say, okay, there are certain figures in the Bible that are not good. If we're acting like them as Christ followers, that's not good. And so we should be aware of that, and we should be willing to confront that Jezebel-ness whenever we see it in one another, whether it is manipulation, or whether it's control, or whether it's dishonesty, or whatever the case may be. These are not Christ-like qualities, and we don't want them amongst us. And while it's very, very easy to sit here and say like, oh, I know some Jezebels, I know some manipulative people, that's not really the point. It's to look in the mirror and say, where am I in this? And not to say we don't call somebody out if we see it. But when it comes to something like manipulation, here's my theory. I think we all do it, and we've been doing it literally since birth. Do you know how manipulative a baby is? I didn't know that until I had a couple. And you go, they do. Like, they just, to get what they want, they will do what they need to do. And so do toddlers, and so do older kids, and very much so do grown-ups. I think we all have our tricks and our tools that we use to try and get people to do what we want. We all have it. And so some of us are just strong and aggressive, and we kind of bulldoze people. And some of us maybe take a softer approach and play the self-pity card and, and try to get people to feel sorry for us. And some of us maybe just try to flatter people to get them on our side. Like, I think there's lots of tools. We have quite a capacity to try and get people to do what we want. So let's not get self-righteous about Jezebel, but to say, okay, where do I see that in me? And, and maybe where do I see that in others where I need to speak to someone? But like, it shouldn't be that weird to say, hey, can we all agree we should be anti-manipulation as Christ followers? We should be anti-bullying. We should be anti-lying. Uh, there are things about Jezebel that we don't want to be like, and this church has not done a good job in dealing with that in-house. And so now Jesus is coming to deal with it because they have not been dealing with it. And so as this Jezebel figure or this Jezebel teaching has infiltrated the church and has led some into uh, adultery, uh, it could be literal adultery if this is a literal woman, but often in both testaments, adultery is used as a picture of, uh, of spiritual idolatry, of, of walking away from the Lord, of compromising our walk with him. And, and so it could be that as well. And if I had to guess, it probably is. And so Jesus says, judgment on Jezebel is coming. When that happens, then everyone will know that I am the one who judges the hearts and the minds, and I am the one who will reward you according to what your deeds have done. And that's a theme that shows up 
over and over again in the Bible that we will give an account before God. We will stand before him, all of us, one day, and we will be judged based on our works, based on what we did while we lived here on earth. And so he will reward us according to what we have done. So what we are seeing in these letters to the seven churches is a little sort of pre-judgment day judgment of this is kind of what it's going to look like. You will be commended for the things that are worth commendation, and then there is going to be things that are not worth commendation, and they will be brought up as well. And so one of my goals as your pastor is to help prepare you to have the best judgment day you can possibly have. That is my heart for you, that when all of us stand before him, it goes as the best that it possibly can. And when it comes to our judgment day, we know that if we've grabbed a hold of Jesus, our eternity is secure, but we will still be judged based on what we did. That will still be a part of it. And so if your judgment day were to happen today... What would that look like? What would be commendable in your life? What would be deserving of rebuke in your life from the one with the blazing eyes who sees through all of us and sees us as we truly are? What would be commendable and what would not be? And because it's not our judgment day today, we can look at the things that would be rebuked and we can say, I can repent of that now. I can begin to work on that now. I can move forward now. I can start to make strides here now. In these letters, Jesus typically encourages and corrects. So what in your life is worthy of encouragement and what in your life is worthy of correction? And knowing that now and giving that some significant time and thought to meditate on, maybe talk to somebody that you trust uh, who can speak into that with you, knowing what we know then, how is that going to motivate how we live our lives from here? What needs to change? What do we need to turn from? What needs to be different moving forward? Jesus goes on, verse 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. There's that sort of siege mentality. Just hold on. Just I'm not going to make you go out and conquer mountains. You just hold on to what you have until I return. So Jesus says there are some in the church who have not fallen in with Jezebel. There are some in the church who have not been caught up in that. And then some have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. And so that's probably a reference to what was called Gnosticism. And this was something that the church fought, uh, a heresy that crept in that was fought for the first uh, few centuries of the church. And Gnosticism was kind of a quasi-Christian belief, like they believed in Jesus and, and maybe even believed he was the Son of God and maybe even believed that he was resurrected and that he was Lord. But they also just had some unusual ideas that was kind of Greek philosophy philosophy mixed in there because Greeks really loved wisdom and they really loved knowledge. And so Gnosticism said, as you follow after Jesus, the best way to know God is to grow in knowledge. And if you keep growing in knowledge and growing in knowledge and growing in knowledge and growing in knowledge, eventually you can reach new planes of spiritual insight. But the thing about that knowledge is that the Gnostic teachers were the only ones who had it. And so if you wanted to grow in knowledge, you had to go to a teacher, and realistically, you had to pay some money. And then as that happened, you would get to get 
these secrets would be revealed to you. They'd share with you what they called the secret knowledge of God. And then as that happened, you could get closer and closer to God. Now, the problem with that idea, of course, is that it's not found in Scripture anywhere. And we would push back on anything that suggests that there's any sort of secrets, certainly that you need to pay for, but any sort of secrecy, like there are certain teachers or certain prophets that have secrets that you don't have or that aren't available to the rest of us because we believe that God has made himself known in his word and that's there for anybody who wants it. And we believe that he makes himself known in Jesus, that in Jesus, God is perfectly represented to us. The Jesus life is God, is God in the flesh. And so as Jesus is living out his life, if you want to know what God is like, you just need to look to Jesus. There's no secret there. He's right there in plain sight for anybody to know him. And we serve a God who wants to be known. He wanted to reveal himself to us. He's given us his word as a gift. He's given us Jesus as a gift. He's given the Holy Spirit as a gift. And so we still see snippets of this. I mean, Scientology would probably be the best current example of you go and you pay a lot of money and they teach you some secrets that are going to help you grow and and all of those things. The Book of Mormon, uh, Mormonism was that very much as well, where Joseph Smith went out into the woods one day and said, I met an angel of the Lord. He gave me a new revelation. There's actually like a third part to the Bible. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and then there's the Book of Mormon, and there's a bunch of secrets in there that God told me and nobody else, and he wrote it on these golden plates, and he's given the revelation to me, and people said, oh, can we see those golden plates? And Joseph said, no, no, those are just for me, uh, but I'll write them down on paper, and you guys can learn the secrets from me. And so it shows up in different ways over the centuries, Um, and And so it's interesting where Gnostics would say, we have God's deep secrets. And Jesus says, those are Satan's deep secrets, actually. Like, even though our God at times is mysterious, we believe he's revealed everything we need to know in his word. And so we don't like the idea of secrets and and the idea that you have to go to specific people uh, to get these secrets. And so that was something that was going on very much in the early church. And Jesus is actually commending the ones who have not fallen into that camp. So as the the rebuke comes, as the correction comes, you have let Jezebel into your midst, and some of you have been deceived and fallen into her trap, and and some of you are falling into these Gnostic deep secrets, but there are some of you who have been able to stay clear of that. There's encouragement there that you just need to hold on a little while longer, and then there's a promise of reward, verse 26 through 29, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I've received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I've said to you before, so much of what happens in the book of Revelation has Old Testament connections, including this part. So for the one who is victorious, your version might say to the one who overcomes or to the one who perseveres, it's all pointing to the same thing, to the one who keeps going in the name of Jesus, to the one who stays faithful, to the one who doesn't fall away, to the one who's able to hold on under siege until Jesus returns, to that one, the one who does my will to the end, there is a reward here, and the reward is pretty massive, right? In previous weeks, it's like you're going to get a stone with your name on it, which is pretty amazing. This reward is you'll have authority over the nations. And there's a line here that one will rule with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery. A couple of scriptures come to mind there. The first is Psalm 2, 8, and 9, which is quoting, Jesus is quoting directly. 
Uh, so in Psalm 2, 8 and 9, this is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And he says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Like, you will be in charge, even in the judgment of them. You will have full authority. And so that's what Jesus inherited. As Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the dead, his reward is he gets to be Lord over all creation, including all the nations of the world. He gets to be King of Kings. He gets to be Lord of Lords. So the promise made to Jesus is that will be you. The nations will be your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure, if we persevere, if we overcome, we will also reign with him. And so what Jesus says in this passage in Revelation is that if you hold on, church, if you keep going, you get to participate in my inheritance with me. That I was given the nations of the world. I was given authority over them. Jesus says, you will reign and rule over creation with me. Just as I received authority from my Father, I will share some of that with you. And Scripture says we are co-heirs of the promise of God. So it's not just that Jesus loved us, like that would be incredible on its own. And it's not just that he died for our sins, which would be more than enough to worship him forever. And it's not just that he invites us back into fellowship with God, which would be so beyond over-the-top incredible. And it's not even just that he says your eternity is secure. You will live with me forever, which is just the most mind-boggling thing that he's done for us out of his great love. In addition to all of those things, he says, I'm actually going to share rulership with you of the heavens, of the earth, of all the nations. You are going to co-reign with me over creation. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. That was the plan from the start. Adam and Eve are created, and God says, this dominion is yours. Your job is to rule over this. Jesus is still in charge, but you're going to rule over this. And so Jesus says, as we're coming around to the end again, I'm restoring and redeeming all of that. We are going back to that place. You will rule over creation with me. Amen, 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 amen. Amazing, right? Incredible. As if everything he's done is not enough. He invites us to share in his inheritance, which he got by going to the cross. That's quite a promotion from people who were sinners and enemies of God, right? We were his enemies. We were against him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We go from enemies of God to co-rulers with him as he invites us to reign with him. Practically, I don't know what that looks like at all. I can't even imagine it, other than we are being invited to share in his inheritance that he earned by going to the cross and going to death for us. We're also told that we will receive the morning star. Jesus says, I will give you the morning star. Come on, worship team, we're just about done here. A couple of thoughts on what the morning star is. One is, is that Venus is actually called the morning star. Uh, Venus is the first star that you can see often as the sun is going down. It's a very bright star, and it gets the nickname the Morning Star. The Romans worshipped Venus as one of the gods, the goddess, and so they would actually have Venus, the Morning Star, painted on their shields, and it was part of a lot of their emblems. So it's possible that Jesus is saying, uh, you know, under a Roman culture that really reveres this Morning Star, uh, Jesus is saying the rewards that I'm going to give you are better than anything that Rome could possibly offer you. I also like Revelation 22:16. a little later in the book. Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright Morning Star. Jesus says, I'm the Morning Star. 
So where Rome honors Venus, the morning star, and worships that goddess as the morning star, Jesus says, I am actually the morning star, not some planet. I'm the morning star. Your reward is me. Not just that you get to rule with me, but you get to be with me. And again, if that was it, that would be enough, right? If Jesus just said, you get to be with me, like my wife and I talk all the time about in the Psalms, it says, oh, I would rather just be a doorkeeper in the house of God than, than anything else in this world. Like, I'm just glad to be here. I'm just excited to be a part of this. I'm just so grateful that he has pulled me out of darkness into light, that he has pulled me out of hell and set me towards heaven, that I know I'm forgiven and that my shame is gone and my guilt is gone. That would be plenty. And then he says, well, not only that, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit and you're going to get to know the presence of God and the leading of the Lord in this life. I'm going to open your eyes to my word and you're going to be able to understand what God has to say. Like, that would be incredible. And then in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, and be prepared to rule and reign alongside me. And that helps reframe anything we're going through in this life. Because scripture says that our trials, our hardships, our difficulties, uh, we're to be joyful in the affliction. We don't have to be joyful about what's happening, but we're joyful in the affliction because we know that he is shaping us. He is forming us. God is developing character in us that needs to last for all eternity. And so when God in this life comes and corrects us through his word, by his spirit, through your pastor being mean to you on a Sunday morning, when God comes to correct us, he is preparing us for the best possible judgment day. He is preparing us now for the best possible eternal reward. And when the apostle Paul considered his hardships, he said, you know, I am convinced that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That whatever we go through in this life has a shelf life to it. It's going to come to an end one way or another. But eternity is a really, really, really long time. And that's where we're going to spend most of our existence as souls. And so as we are going through our hardships, we are saying, okay, God is doing something in me. He's trying to purge that bad character out of me. He's trying to correct these things that need correcting. He's wanting to encourage the good things so that I keep walking in there so that when I stand before him on my judgment day, we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We get to be commended for the good things we have done in his name and hopefully far less things that need correction or rebuke. And then as we receive the reward that he has for us, it's going to be because he was merciful enough to correct us while we were here on earth and put us through some trials here on earth so that we can be formed and we can be ready to stand before him one day. As we consider all of this in light of our year of thriving, which is the name we've given this year, we want this to be our emphasis. How are we thriving in 2021? A lot of 2020 was just surviving. This year we want to focus on how are we thriving. And so just that simple question again, it's a simple question. The answer takes some soul searching, which is if your judgment day was today, you were standing before him today and your eternity was being set and you were going to get rewarded according to the works and you were going to be assigned a position to reign with him based on how you had conducted yourself. If your judgment day was today, what would be commendable? What would be good? What would he see with his fiery eyes and say, well done? And then what wouldn't? What would be pointed out? What would be corrected? What would be rebuked? And knowing that, as we reflect on that, maybe as we talk about that with somebody that we trust, as we give that some thought and prayer and meditation, knowing that now, how is that going to inform us moving forward? 
How is that going to call us to change? What needs to be repented of? What needs to shift in our life? What's good that we can just keep pouring into? What's good where we're letting our salt and our light spread to the world around us, where we are doing good so that people will praise our Father in heaven as they look at our lives? Where are we growing? Where is there increase? And as we consider all these things, what's it going to mean for us moving forward? Jesus has gone to the cross for us. He has died because we couldn't deal with our sin by ourselves. He did that for us because we needed someone to save us. We couldn't save ourselves. He rose from the dead to conquer our death. And maybe there's some here or watching online uh, you don't know on Judgment Day. You're not sure where your eternity would be. You don't know what happens next. And, And you've never asked for forgiveness from the Lord. You've never sought to live after him. And so maybe today's the day for you. Maybe today's the day to ponder that question. What does it mean to repent of sin? What does it mean to say, I need your forgiveness, Lord? And to pray even that simply, I need your forgiveness. I I trust in you and I'm gonna follow after your way. I wanna live in a way that's pleasing you. I wanna live in a way that's gonna make my judgment day a good day. I want to live like that. And if you want to pray that prayer or if you have any questions about that, you can come afterwards and talk to me or any other pastor. If you're watching at home, you can talk to anyone you're sitting with. But if that's you, you've already made that decision. You know where your eternity is at in light of all of these other things. And to just let gratitude rise up where we say even the harshness of the words that that the church gets in this passage, it's that he loves us enough to correct us. He loves us enough to give us time to repent. He loves us enough to want us to shift away from things that are toxic and ungodly and impure in our lives. He loves us enough to do that. He wants us to have the best possible judgment day. And so in his grace and in his mercy, he brings correction. And so to to be able to trust a God who loves us that much, like a good parent who says there's some things that need to be fixed and sometimes discipline needs to come in order to fix these things, but it's all for your good. It's all because I love you. And to say, all right, well, I can trust that God. I can follow that God and I can worship that God. And he's worthy of our worship today. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we contemplate all of these things, as we spend some time in worship. We don't have enough time. We're going to sing one song now, right? It's not enough time to worship him the way he deserves. But sing this song to him, okay? You're not singing to a screen. You're not ultimately singing to the people around you. Sing this to him because he is worthy and because you're grateful for everything that he's done.